0: Amen. Hey, if you would, grab your Bible and get with me to the Gospel of John. If you don't have a Bible and a seat back in front of you, you will find a copy of God's Word. Uh, John is the fourth book into the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then you will come to the book of John. New year, new book of the Bible for us. And I just, I, one of the things as we gather here today, I, I found myself this morning so thankful to God for uh, His rhythms, of newness that, that he builds into just the calendar. I'm thankful for his new morning mercies every day. I'm thankful for new weeks. I'm thankful for new months. And we gather here today thankful for new years. We don't know what is coming in the year ahead, Um, We gather here today with, I'm sure many of us, hopes and dreams and thoughts and things that we would love to do and places we would love to go. Um, I can assure you of a couple things this morning. Uh, Today's message is not a new year, new you kind of message. Today's message is it's a new year, but let's hold up Jesus Christ because whatever is coming in this year, Jesus will prove himself good. In valleys, he will prove himself good. On mountaintops, he will prove himself good. And so all we're doing here in the first, very first day, how good was it to gather and worship together on the very first day of a calendar year though, right? That was sweet. And now all we're going to do is simply hold up Jesus. And for the next 15 weeks leading up to Easter, we're going to do that same thing every week. Hold up Jesus. Look at him from a new angle. Look at him from a new vantage point and just make our way through John's gospel here. Now, a couple of things I need to say as we lay some groundwork for our study in the Gospel of John, I actually want to go back and put a bow on our Exodus series a bit because Exodus is not um, something altogether separate from our study in John, Exodus segues and builds a bridge to the Gospel of John. The week before Christmas, we studied Exodus 33 and 34. As as you come to Exodus 35, um, what you have from Exodus 35 to chapter 39 are all the details of how everything that God gave to Moses to be built, the tabernacle, all its utensils, it's all the details of how all of those things were actually built. Exodus chapter 40, which we glanced at last week during our Christmas weekend, is this beautiful picture of the, the, the tabernacle finally being erected at the center of the camp. And as the tabernacle goes up, the glory of God comes down, the cloud settles on the tabernacle, and the glory of God manifests himself in the presence of his people. As the cloud remained there, the people would remain camp. As the cloud would lift and move, the people would move following the presence of the Lord and his leading. But you have this powerful picture as Exodus ends of God's glory manifest at the center of the camp in the tabernacle. As John begins his gospel, he begins it differently than the other gospel writers. If you opened to the first page of the book of Matthew, you would find a detailed genealogy proving that Jesus has come from the line of David, from the line of Abraham. If you open to the beginning of the book of Luke, you'd find this awesomely detailed historical account of Jesus' background and another lineage that he unpacks there. John starts his gospel right off the bat by laying the theological groundwork of who Jesus is. The very first words we come to in the gospel, and we looked at last week on Christmas weekend, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Boom, first line of the gospel. John wants us to understand Jesus is God in flesh. You go down in chapter 1 and you find in verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. This God was pleased to condescend and come down and dwell with broken humanity on the greatest rescue mission to save humanity from the penalty of their sin. And so this is how John begins the gospel. He lays out this theology of who Jesus is. Now, I love when books of the Bible give us an explicit purpose statement of why they were written. I'm so thankful when the Holy Spirit inspires one to write. This is why I wrote this book. At the end of John's gospel, we find his purpose statement, and it's these words in John 20 verses 30 and 31. It says, "Now Jesus did many other what's that word? That's a big deal in John's gospel. We're going to talk a lot about that today and in the weeks to come. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these, these what? Signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John's like, this is why I wrote my gospel. I could have written about, John speaking, I could have written about all sorts of signs that Jesus did, but I've picked the ones that I've picked so that you may believe and so that in believing you may have life in his name. Now, what does John mean when he talks about signs? William Hendrickson defines a sign as, as, you know, he believes John, you know, means. He says, "...a sign is a proof of divine authority and majesty." So there's seven signs throughout the Gospel of John we're going to study again and again in the midst of other things Jesus did and taught. But the whole point is that we would see that as Jesus performs these signs, these miracles, these proofs of his divine authority and majesty, we would believe and in believing we would have life in his name. And so, for 15 weeks from now to Easter, we're just going to hold Jesus Christ up. We're going to come in here, we're going to simply gaze at him, and we're going to enjoy him from every single vantage point that John unpacks this Messiah to us. Now, a couple things about how I've structured this series I'm not going to preach every passage of John's gospel. As I've said, I'm going to preach it 15 weeks. The passages I don't preach will be released in a midweek devotional through our newsletter for your own study. So be sure that you're subscribed to that. If you need help subscribing to that, um, reach out to us. And then the last thing I'll say by way of just laying the foundation is this fits in line with the purpose the Lord has given us this year of just understanding more of who God is. We say around here that worship is a response of praise and adoration to God for who God is. If we're going to respond in worship to the way God's worthy of, we need to know who he is. And so the book of Exodus, we took this look at God, God the Father. In John's gospel, we're taking a close-up look at God the Son, and then after Easter, a short series on God the Holy Spirit. And so I want to Begin our study in John's gospel by looking at the first of the signs he does at John, beginning in John chapter 2. But as I take us there, let me pray and let's ask for God's help. Father, we want to be caught up this morning from the heart with a greater grasp of who you are. Lord, at the beginning of every new year, we're bombarded with all sorts of tactics, all sorts of rhythms and routines, and not all are bad, Lord, but what we need the most is a fresh glimpse of who you are. Lord, we're here today begging you to glorify yourself. Jesus, be lifted high. Because as you are, you draw all men unto yourself. Will you stir our hearts to worship as we submit ourselves to your word? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to do three things this morning. I want to read this account of the first sign Jesus performs. I then want us to just walk through it, and so we understand what it is we're reading here. And then thirdly, I want to pull out four principles at the end that I pray will lead our hearts to worship over this. So let's read this. John chapter 2, verse 1. It says, On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. The first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So the setting of this first miracle is, uh, as verse 1 tells us here, at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Now, there's something we got to understand right off the bat. When we read the Bible, when we come to a word like wedding, it is almost impossible for us to not interpret that word wedding with, uh, with, without bringing in our context of what a wedding is. And so in, in our day, we're used to celebrating a wedding by showing up to a church, or these days more showing up to a barn, right? Showing up to a barn, having a ceremony, you know, lasts somewhere in kind of our tradition, in the range of a half hour. If the pastor starts going 35, 40, you're like, wrap it up, man, we got to eat and from there, we make our way to dinner, some food, and, and, and we spend an evening celebrating this covenant that has been made. Uh, if you think our weddings are long, you would have not have wanted been a first century Jew. This would have been a week-long celebration of gatherings in the evening to feast and to celebrate the couple that God had brought together. Um, This week-long, this particular week-long celebration of evening feasting and celebrating uh, encountered a problem, and Mary brings this problem to Jesus. They have run out of wine. Now, we can relate to some extent with the feeling we would have if we were to host an event like this and we had run out of food or drink. But we can't fully relate to how big of a deal this would have been for this groom. The groom's family is who was responsible for this celebration. How big of a problem this would have been for the groom's family here. Uh, D.A. Carson, brilliant uh, scholar, he says this, to run out of supplies would be a dreadful embarrassment and a shame culture. There is some evidence it could also lay the groom open to a lawsuit from aggrieved relatives of the bride. So if you thought like you had in-law issues on your wedding day, right? Like they're talking potential lawsuits. They're talking all of the guests walking out of this and their wedding celebration and the feasting that was to accompany it being the talk of the town for a long time. And I don't know about you, but I didn't want my wedding the talk of the town for a long time. This is a major, major deal. Mary understands it. We don't exactly know like what Mary's place as a guest in all of this was, but she comes out to Jesus and she says, they have run out of wine. Now, when you look at verse four and you read it in English, and Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? That falls a bit harshly on our modern western ears, does it not? Like teenagers in the room, I do not recommend, hey clean your room. Woman, what does this have to do with me? (laughs) You're not Jesus. Don't try it. It won't go well. What makes this fall a bit harshly on our ears is that there's really no good English word To translate here what we have woman. Uh, It's actually the same reference Jesus will use from the cross when talking about Mary as well. One scholar says the closest thing we have in English is probably the phrase ma'am. Jesus by no means is speaking disrespectfully to his mother here, but it does seem that in this interaction between mother and son, There is a gentle rebuke from Lord Jesus to his mom, reminding her of what's going to take place when he begins to manifest his miracles in public ways. Woman, ma'am, what does this have to do with me? My, what's it say in your Bible? My hour has not yet come. This phrase of Jesus' hour will appear six more times in the gospel. Every time it appears, it's this, this reference, this, this collective reference to the work Jesus has set his heart towards of his crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection. Jesus is reminding, in this interaction between mom and son, Jesus is reminding as Lord Understand what will happen as I begin to manifest these signs or these miracles in public ways. The the moment I begin to manifest my miracles publicly, my feet are set towards Calvary. Jesus never denies that he won't do this. In fact, we're going to find that he is going to do this. But it's, the, at the, be, it's uh, the beginning of him setting his feet towards Calvary. And so, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And then I love verse 5. I can just picture it. His mother said to the servants, can you just picture she's kind of walking out of this back room? Do whatever he tells you. <laughs> just do what he says. And the stage is set for this first sign. Verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification. Each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So if you can just picture this, here's a picture of what these could have looked like. These stone large stone water jars, six of them, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. And it tells us what the purpose of these jars were. It was for the Jewish rites of purification. It was for when you came in to celebrate this meal and this feasting, you would have done your ceremonial washing here to to make sure that you were approaching the table to eat clean. And so Jesus looks at these six stone water jars. In verse 7, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, "Think think about this now. Okay, hold on. Just look at me. Look at me. I don't know about you. I can only speak for like my experience growing up. Studying the Bible, no, I didn't study it till I was nineteen. Who am I kidding? Um, hearing preaching on the Bible, then studying it more at nineteen and and beyond. Especially with the miracles of Jesus, we can grow like so familiar to them that like we 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 can't even fathom what it would have been like to be in this back room or wherever this took place in a courtyard somewhere and to see massive jars of water, massive jars be filled with water. And then to hear something like this, verse 8. And he said to them, now draw some out, and take it to the master of the feast. Now, the, the master of the feast would have been like the chief caterer, head waiter, but would have had a much greater significance than just like some catering company you would hire for your wedding today. He was in charge of, of like the, the, the celebration, the worship that was to happen in the feasting. He probably would have known the wine has gone. In fact, there's, I think, some things that indicate that in what we're going to read here. All the servants know is that they've poured water to the brim in these massive jars. Now, by Jesus' word alone, they are to take some out and to approach the master of the ceremony. Everything in their past experience is no different than our past experience. Meaning, when we pour water into something, what do we expect to dip out of it? They're walking to the master of the ceremony by faith in Jesus' word alone that something's going to happen here. We read this like, oh yeah, well, of course, he's going to drink wine. Do you understand how crazy that is? Do, you understand, do we understand how supernatural this is? And so he says, now draw some out, take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Now, when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine and did not know where it came from. Although the servants who had drawn the water knew, they're like. <laughs> this is what he said. He like outs the like ancient secret here. He's like, hey, hey, hey. Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. He's talking to the groom here. But you have kept the good wine till now. And the groom's like, what are you talking about? (laughs) And then John comments on what's just happened. Because we can't lose sight (laughs) that something so much bigger than just this groom's family saving face in the community is happening here. John comments on what's happening, verse 11. This, the first of his signs, remember a sign is his manifesting his divine beauty and attributes. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And what's it say? And manifested his what? His glory. At the the center of the community in Exodus was the tabernacle. And the glory of God came down and manifested his glory in their midst. John opens his gospel by saying, This Jesus is God who's come to manifest his glory in our midst. Now, in the normal activity of humanity's life, like the celebration of a wedding, God has come and manifested his glory in a way that does what John says the purpose of his gospel is to do, and his disciples, what's it say? And his disciples, what? Believed in him. How cool is this? Like really when you stop and think about it? When we realize that this isn't just a story on ink and page, it is that. But it's a story that happened in an actual place of a wedding in first century Cana. How cool is this? Now, it's one thing to read it. It's another thing to understand it. But we can't stop until we're worshiping over it. Four, four things I want to bring out to us today. Water, let's call it water, wine in our worship. Water, wine in our worship. First, if we're going to worship over this, we need to see this sign, this miracle, with fresh eyes. God's got to do a fresh work in our heart on the first day of this year. Because you and I both know this. We can set our alarm for a morning devotion time. We can be to John chapter 2. We can walk down the stairs or down the hallway. We can find our favorite morning seat. And we can sit down and we can, we can read this story. And, and we can read about water miraculously turning into wine. We can see that he manifested his, his glory. We can see that the disciples believed. And the whole time we can be yawning our way through it. I'm as convicted about it as you are. Jesus, we need to see you fresh this year. We need to know in the heart of our hearts that you are the living God who came and who died and who rose again, who is alive and seated at the right hand of the Father, who is still at work in our midst, I don't know, I I said it at the beginning, I don't know what's coming for our years. I don't know the valleys. I don't know the mountaintops. I don't know where we're going. I don't know what God's going to do. But here's what I do do know. Here's what I do know. We need Jesus. And we need to understand that he is not just some dead, dusty character on ink and page in our Bible. He is ruling and reigning and alive right now. And until we get that... that he is King of kings and Lord of lords, and he is interested in our lives. He is leading our lives. He is interested in our families. Come on. Let's see him afresh this year. Water, wine, our worship. second thing I think we need to take from this is this. Let this be a decision point of faith for you today. This whole gospel is for the purpose of us seeing who Jesus is, looking at the miracles that he did, and bringing us to rock-solid, bedrock belief that he is Lord in Christ. And that the moment we believe, we will experience life. We will have life the purpose of the signs the miracles in John's gospel isn't just about the signs meaning if you can imagine those servants in that back room when when they realized all however many gallons that is of those six jars have Turned from water to wine. Sure, they would have went over there. They would have looked at it. They would have smelt it. They might have touched it. They would have pulled it out. They would have rubbed their eyes to make sure what, they, what their brain is telling them is actual reality. But they would not have worshipped the wine. Their heads would have turned to worship the one who has the power to do that with the wine. I'm saying this to say, if you're in the room today and, and you're like somehow you're like, hey, new year, new me, I'm going to church tomorrow. You have to understand something. Everything that we've studied this morning, you're going to be back here next week. Everything we're going to study next week, and then you're going to come back the next week, and everything we're going to study that week is all for the purpose of driving your heart to a place where you have to decide who Jesus is. You have to. You're going to be confronted with miracle after miracle after miracle. And you have two choices. You can get on your knees and say, Jesus, you are truly Lord and God. You have come to save me from my sin. I declare my faith in you. I will follow you with my life. The only other option you have confronted by these miracles is to persist in unbelief and deny His Lordship, but you don't have a third path of just getting to hear these and experience these and doing nothing with Jesus. Today is the day to believe. Today, first day of a new year, is the day to say, I see that my sin has separated me from my holy God Creator. I see I'm desperately in need of a Savior. Jesus, I declare my faith in you. You are Lord and I am not. And I will follow you with my life. Today is the day. He has come to save you. He has come to know you. He has come to rescue you. Today is the day to believe it. So we see this story, we see the sign with fresh eyes, we, we must let this be a decision point of faith. The third thing that I pray will lead our hearts to worship over this, we must worship over the picture of the new replacing the old. Now what do I mean by that? If you think what I'm about to say is a bit of a, a, an interpretive stretch, stay with me here because I want to show you from multiple examples of how John begins his gospel, what I believe Jesus is doing here. Throughout so much of my life, I have wondered, Jesus, of all of the like, first relatively public signs you could have done, why this one? Like It seems like I, I would have some better ideas. It's usually a dangerous place to be, right? Why this one? Sure, I mean, the miracle in itself of water going to wine, that's awesome in and of itself. But is there more to this? And it seems that there is. One of the things that we see here, remember, Jesus doesn't do anything by happenstance. What were the jars of water used for? They were, they were used for the, the, the ritual cleansing. There's something to this, out with the old, in with the new, in which Jesus takes what has been used for their ritual cleansing of the washing of hands and washing of feet. And he says, out with the old. Out with the old ritual religiosity cleansing, in with the new, in with the new wine of the covenant. And this picture of the wine of the covenant is a powerful one because Jesus' first miracle has to do with this this wine. But then if if we think about also as Jesus sits around his table with his disciples before he goes to the cross, he holds up this fruit of the vine and he said, this is the blood of of the new covenant. I think there's something too here. Him taking water that was used for their ritual washing and turning it into this picture of the new covenant, this new covenant wine. Now, if you're like, ah, I think that's a bit of a stretch, let me show you a few other things from the beginning of John's gospel. Right after this, Jesus is going to walk into the temple. He's going to cleanse it. You're going to see, you can see the heading of that right there in John chapter 2. And they're going to go, who are you? And he says, uh, destroy this temple, and I will raise it in three days. They're like, you're crazy. It took us like 46 years to build this place. It was what he was talking about. What was he talking about? He's talking about himself. There's this reality of out with this old temple, replaced by a new temple of Jesus Christ. After that, he's going to have a conversation with Nicodemus, the religious, religious leader of the day. And he's going to tell this Nicodemus, in order to uh, experience the kingdom, he would need to be born Again. There's this first birth reality replaced by a need for a new birth, a rebirth. And we're going to look at that next week. And Nicodemus is going to go, what are you talking about? Jesus says it's the only way to the kingdom to be born again. After this, he's going to have an encounter with a woman at a well. And she's going to talk about this Jacob's water, Jacob dug this well, and Jesus is going to talk about the water from Jacob's well, and he's going to tell this woman at this well that there's greater water now available to her. There is a new living water now available to her. And in that same interaction, the woman's going to go, oh, okay, but you guys talk about worship on that mountain, we talk about worship on this mountain, and Jesus says there's a new way of worship that's in, and it's worship in spirit and truth. John begins his gospel again and again by highlighting for us how Jesus is ushering in a new way of the covenant. And I believe we see the picture even in the first miracle here at this wedding. So water, wine, and our worship. We have to see this sign with fresh eyes. Jesus, we want to see you afresh this year. we got to let this bring us to a decision point of faith. we got to worship over the picture of the new replacing the old. And then will you just stand for this? I want to charge us to this one. Please stand. I want to charge us. I want to exhort us to this in a new year. I don't want us to miss within this story here that there's a a reality that we must obey Jesus fully by faith. I pulled this out a bit for us earlier, but after reading this story, I don't know how many times in my life, what struck me the most this week is the words of Jesus saying, now draw out some of this and take it to the master of the ceremony. it It struck me like it had never struck me before that these servants have to purely obey what Jesus has commanded by faith as counterintuitive as it was to them at the time. All they had to go off was the command that Jesus gave them, and they do, and they obey, and they see the supernatural work of Jesus in the midst of this. I look at you and I say, I don't know what 2023 has in store. All I do know is this. Obey Jesus by faith. Take him at his word. This is full of the commands of God. Take him at his word. Even when you're like, I don't think this is going to play out well. Take him at his word. But I don't know if this is going to be the easy path. It doesn't matter. Take him at his word. Give Jesus right now on the first day of a new year, give him your yes. Jesus, the answer is yes. You're like, well, I don't even know what I'm saying yes to. It doesn't matter because Jesus is the one asking. Whatever he asks of us, we can trust him. Jesus, the answer is yes. We will go wherever you go, We ask us to go, yes. We will do whatever you ask us to do, yes. You are Lord, and we will take you at your word. As counterintuitive as it may seem in the moment, we will obey him fully by faith, amen? 2023, let's go. For the next 15 weeks, we're going to show up here. We're going to hold Jesus high. We're going to look at him from another vantage point. And we're going to walk out and say, Jesus is awesome. And then we're going to do it all over the next week. Then we're going to do it the next week. And then we're going to gather on Easter, and we're really going to do it. Amen? Redeemer, you are loved, and you're sent. We'll see you back here next Sunday to do it again.